Welcome to Gen Z Deep Dive, Season 3. I'm your host, Aaron Brown, Chair of the Institute for Generational Dynamics. 2020 has been a tumultuous year. In the past couple of months, with the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, we realize that our nation is in turmoil. And so, instead of doing an episode where I talk to you about what is going on with the state of Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, and Baby Boomers, we invited Sean Madison, a Gen Z African-American man, to come on our show and share his thoughts on the very present turmoil that we are experiencing here in America. As you'll find throughout this episode, turmoil is the right word. And we are deeply grateful, tons of gratitude for Sean sharing his thoughts. So without much further ado, please meet Sean Madison. So my passion for politics uh, really started when I was about five years old. Um, my grandpa would take me to go canvassing with him and door knocking uh, in the 2000 presidential uh, election. And, um, you know, I just, I loved it from there. Like, I loved meeting new people. I loved trying to push, uh, I don't want to say push an agenda, but push a campaign um, that my family believed in. And granted, I was only five years old, you know. Um, but I just loved it from there. And I loved watching the news all the time. Um, I would stay up late just to watch the news, the 10 o'clock evening local news. Um, and just grew a passion from there, just from learning and listening and and seeing how uh, politics is a vehicle to get to government in order to make a change to impact people's lives for the better. Um, and from there, you know, spurred the love of country. Um, normally it's the love of country that spurred your love of politics, but for me it was the reverse. Um, and from there, I just, I love my country. I love uh, what we stand for. I love the fact that we have a lot, a long way to go um, in achieving those founding principles that we were founded on. Um, but because of that, uh, that's why I felt called, if you will, uh, to devote myself to politics and to the political sphere, um, <clears throat> for the rest of my life. And, um, as of the past seven or eight years, I have worked on countless political campaigns, whether from local, as local as they can get, like tax auditor, um, to as high as a, a U.S. Senate campaign. I've been working for a presidential campaign during a primary season in 2016. Um, so, you know, those things, every campaign is different, I've learned, just like every experience is different, and every person is different. So uh, I love that aspect of it. I love the fact that I got to do it while I was in college and sometimes earn college credit for it, too. Um, and, you know, I, I, I realize that in politics and in government, there is a lack of leadership. And so while going to school, learning about things concerning leadership, it was very easy for me to, uh, to see sort of the vacuum and to see the gap that was missing. Because I'd learn, I'd learn things from you in our leadership classes, and then I'd learn, um, and then I'd go back and I'd go out into the world and see how politics works. And I'm like, well, only if there was a leader that would do this or would say this, then maybe this is, what would, this is how it could be better. Um, so yeah, it's kind of my background of how I, got started in politics and government. So, yeah. Sean, you are African-American. Uh, I'm sure that's not a surprise to you. Uh, <laughs> you know, yes, you're telling me things I know. Um, you're African-American. Uh, you're 24. Is that correct? That's correct. 24. So you fall into what we at the Institute would term Gen Z. Um, you were a little disappointed when you found out you were Gen Z the other day. I was just a smidgen, yeah. I I embrace yeah. my millennial, my millennial uh, identity when I don't return text messages. Like, well, I'm just being a millennial. Uh, <laughs> when I look for, you know, started intermittent fasting. You know, only millennials could skip a meal and create something new and call it fasting. So and profit I just, off of it. Right. I just try to embrace it as much as possible. So I think you should embrace your Gen Z-ness as, as much as possible. So, so with all of that said, you're actually probably more of a cusper. And so 
for our audience out there that may not be familiar with all the terminology we use at the Institute, a cusper is someone who is born on the cusps of a new generation. So, you know, if you're 26 and a millennial, you're more of a cusper. You're going to have some millennial qualities as well as Gen Z qualities because 25 is, is the beginning, beginning age right now for, for Gen Z. So Sean's 24, so he's most likely a cusper. Shares some of those qualities here and there. One thing that you and I really dove into a couple of weeks ago on the 4th of July was uh, just the turmoil that, that America is currently in and uh, all of the, the various perspectives that are out there. When we're, uh, we're seeing potentially reform on police brutality, uh, knock and enter, issues um, that cost one young lady her life uh, here a few months ago. Uh, we see what has happened with, uh, I believe, Rashard Brooks down in Atlanta, Georgia, and some of, some of the turmoil that has followed that incident. We're also seeing New York City uh, basically telling cops they can't retire early because there's been a 400% uh, increase in retirement applications uh, given with what has happened in New York City. So the world is in turmoil. I know I've used that word a few times, but I think it is appropriate to some some degree. So just wanted to kind of dive in, uh, since the name of the show is Gen Z Deep Dive, uh, dive into your experience uh, as a young African-American man, um, especially because Gen Z is the most racially diverse generation that we have had in America. So about, so right now Pew Research would say about 52% or one out of every two Gen Zers uh, is Caucasian. And I believe the numbers that go along with that is 25% are Hispanic, 14% are Black, 6% are Asian and 5% are others. So, so yeah, it's the most diverse generation that we have had thus far. So we'd just love to kind of hear your experience as, as a young African-American man uh, growing up in the South. Sean is from Louisiana. He currently resides back in Louisiana after college. So let me not tee this up anymore. Um, why don't you go ahead and, and take the swing Sure. So there's a lot, lot to, lot to go there. So I'll try to make this as succinct as possible. Um, anyone who knows me knows that I can be a very long-winded person. Um, so I'll try to, try to not be so long-winded today. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to my experiences um, in relation to all the turmoil going on, just to not beat a dead horse, but that's really the best word to describe everything going on. Um, I think of my experiences in relation to it all. Um, I have had similar negative experiences. Um, I have had not pleasant experiences, not necessarily just with police officers, but with uh, white people, with friends, um, with family members that look like me and with family members who don't look like me. <clears throat> I come from a, a mixed race family, mixed race family. So uh, we have, we're kind of a mosaic of, of people, um, if you will. And the one thing that I realized in all of the experiences is that the one biggest underlying message that connects them all is ignorance. And uh, to me, it's ignorance of, well, I don't know what someone else is going through and I don't care to learn. So I'm going to make this assumption about them and I'm going to assume this about them and, and how they act and this, that, the other, which is wrong. Um, no matter what color you are, that's a wrong thing to do. But I'll, I'll go into a couple of details. So when I was uh, when I was five years old, I was in kindergarten, and I was told uh, by a friend of mine that I couldn't play with him and the other boys because I was black. And I was like, No, I'm not. And I showed them the inside of my hands, my palms, and I said, Look, I'm I'm white just like you are. And um, I went home crying that day, and I I didn't tell my teacher because. I don't know why I didn't tell my teacher, but uh, I went home crying that day. My mom had to sit me down and explain to me the differences between between us 
in that the fact that the only difference between us was that I happened to be darker and I had more of a tan than he did. But that didn't make me any different, that didn't make me any less than or any better than. It's just that I looked a little bit different than him. That never, that didn't deter me from having friends. I went to predominantly white institutions of schooling from kindergarten all the way through high school, even my college time. I was oftentimes one or the only or maybe two, one of two or three uh, black students uh, in my class. I was always in honors and gifted classes as well in middle and high school. And I never really had that many other African-American students uh, in my classes. I think I can point to one or two. So being in those, those spaces, being at those tables, opened me up to a different worldview that was not just the one that I was accustomed to. Um, so I had to learn myself. And this is how other cultures interact. This is how other people interact with each other based on who they are. For me, I always got asked the questions, you know, of, well, hey, your mom's black. Does she wash her hair every day? Um, or, hey, do black people cook this way? Like, do they all like fried chicken and watermelon, you know? And like, you look at those things today and you you cringe and you're like, man, why did they think that? But I also look back to the way I felt in that moment. And I thought back to what my grandpa always told me. And that was to always take a moment to educate whenever, whenever possible. Don't escalate a situation. Um, and in those moments, I would, I would say, yeah, my mom washes her hair. My, my mom washes her hair just like your mom washes her hair. Like, no, we don't all like fried chicken and watermelon. I like fried chicken because that's just, I just like it. But I hate watermelon. That doesn't make me any less black though, right? Um, and I would say, you know, just because I like something and someone else doesn't like it doesn't make me or them any more or less black, just like it doesn't make you any more or less white. So I just remember for the those record, moments. Just for the record, I love fried chicken. That and I really true. enjoy watermelon. I just want to get that out there. I know that's burning on everybody's minds. <laughs> and for the record, uh, Aaron Brown and I have shared a lot of, of, of fried chicken meals together. Tons so, of churches chicken. Um, tons of, tons churches, of churches. And Popeyes, most importantly. So, you know, I remember those, those times. And, and technically, they were called microaggressions um, because they were said in oftentimes a very condescending way. But I never took them in a condescending way. And that's not to say that I'm better because I didn't take it in a condescending way and I didn't get mad. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is I chose how I was going to react because I chose, I realized for one, I have to go to class with these people every single day. I was probably going to be in class with them for the next several years. I didn't want to make, I didn't want to, for me, I didn't want to pick a fight with them over something so what I viewed as so small um, that could have been quashed and nipped in the bud. Um, for what that could have had a longer lasting effect. Um, I was involved in student council when I was in high school. And um, there was a student council camp that we would always go to in the summertime. And I got asked to be on staff for that camp one year. Well, I went to a department store. I was looking for a shirt because we always had like a dance or ball kind of thing. I was looking for a shirt to go uh, specifically with that, that event. And I walked in and um, I was wearing um bermuda shorts you know typical vineyard vines type shorts and some boat shoes and a, and a, a button down button down shirt with the sleeves rolled up it was a gingham shirt actually so i looked very much like what some gen zers would call a frat a frat guy were you um, wearing sperry boat shoes i was wearing sperry boat shoes yes the only brand to wear in boat shoes yes right right yeah so um I was your typical frat preppy guy in high school. That's who my friends, that's what all of us dressed like. That's what we were comfortable in. And that was that. So I went in and um, I went to go find a shirt and I was in the, I think I was in the Ralph Lauren section looking, looking at a shirt. And um, I noticed that this lady was kind of following me and I had a couple shirts in my hand to go try on in the, in the fitting room. And um, every section I went to, she would, she would follow me there. And, and I was like, she would stay a distance, but she would always be looking. And I got, kept looking back at her. At one point I said, well, ma'am, can I, can I help you? Like, are you looking for something? And she said, well, you know, I just don't trust your, your kind, your type. And I said, I said, oh, ma'am, I'm sorry. Me thinking like I'm young, I'm 16 years old. Like she probably thinks that I'm one of those crazy 16 year olds that wants to steal something. Mind you, at the time, I still looked like I was 35 when I was 16, so nothing has changed um, there. But I said, you know, I'm not 
here to I'm not I'm not like the other student council or my other uh, peers like I'm not here to steal anything I can guarantee you that like I'm 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 just I would never do that my mom is a very honorable and good son um, but thank you for for that I said I'm sorry that some other teenagers have, have been so so mean and rude she said oh I wasn't talking about you being young or a teenager and I said well what were you talking about because me, I, I refuse to I refuse to assume that because I didn't quite think that that was actually still a thing in 2012. Like I refuse to think that it was 2011. She said, "Well, you know, black people." I said, "Okay." Um, so I walked over to her. I handed her the four shirts that were in my hands, and I said, um, "I'm going to go find your manager because I need to file a complaint." And she said, "Do whatever you need to do." And I'm thinking, "Okay." So I went and filed the complaint. The manager was very apologetic. And the next time I went to that department store, that lady was no longer to be found. And I would oftentimes go to that department store for different sales or whatever, because I've always liked to shop, still do. Just out of curiosity, how how old would you say, would you guess that this lady was that uh, that insulted you and, and everything? She was at least in her 50s. Okay. At least in her 50s. Um, so at the time, a little bit older than my than my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely in her fifties, I would say. And, you know, I thought at the time, like I was very involved in high school. I was what we call Mr. Pioneer. I was like the pinnacle student, if you will, um, or, of spirit or whatnot. And, um, my professor, my teachers were all 40 plus years old. Right. So I thought that I had a rapport with people who were older than me that were my parents' age. And that moment, it kind of hit me, but like, not everyone views you the same way. You know, you're still viewed as a threat just because you're black, not because you're young, or just because you're black. Um, not because you're like six foot one, like you look like you lift weights, but just because you're black. You know, none of those things were a threat except the fact that you were black. Um, so I went home and, and I cried in the car a little bit because I was like, well, gee, this is like what just happened to me was exactly kind of the catalyst for for the things that happened to my grandpa and my grandma. and and the stories that I've heard from the Jim Crow era South, I was afraid. And that was the first time I'd ever been afraid in that moment was, and, and I thought to myself, how do I even tell my grandpa? How do I tell my mom? You know, I don't know what they're going to do because they, I know that they love me. They want to protect me, but I don't want them to act irrationally, you know, because no matter who you are, no matter what your skin color is, if you tell your parents or someone that loves you deeply, something wrong that happened to you, there will be a visceral reaction. Everyone's different, but there will be some sort of visceral reaction, you know? Or a murder. I mean, it's, it's or, one of the or two, murder. right? Or murder, you know? Like murder or a punch thrown or some words thrown. Like, it, there's no telling what could have happened, you know? Because I had never been in that situation to see how my, my mom would respond. And I didn't really want to, to see that, how she would respond. But I went home and she, she could tell that I was crying. She asked what was wrong and I told her what happened. And I could tell that she was very angry, but she sat down and, and she explained to me, she said, Sean, you have to realize that these things are not normal. They are not common, but they still are common enough to where you need to anticipate them and be ready to respond to them accordingly. And that's kind of, I think, how I live my life on a daily basis is that seeing that these things aren't normal and being able to anticipate them in order to respond to them appropriately. I think a lot of the issues today that we face are the fact that people have responded inappropriately in some ways, um, and then the people who have responded appropriately haven't seen change as quickly as they would have liked. Both of those things can be valid. You know, you can, you can respond the wrong way, but you can also respond the right way and still not be heard. And a lot of the the, uh, the unrest that we're seeing, I believe, is from the fact that people have been responding appropriately. There used to be, you know, there are people that say, well, <clears throat> well, as long as you obey the law, you're not going to get arrested. You're not going to get frisked. You're not going to get pulled over. Um, as long as you don't talk back, you're not going to get arrested. As long as you um, don't wear your pants below your butt. You know, I love those kind of microaggressions where we assume that just because you're black and you wear jeans, they're going to be below your butt. Or as you just speak a certain way, no one's going to be, um, no one's going to think secondly about you or think, think differently about you. Those things are wrong um, because we wouldn't, 
we wouldn't have to say that to our white friends and our white counterparts nearly as often as we say them to our to our black friends and counterparts. Um, so it's those kinds of issues that I see kind of have bubbled over into today that people are just fed up with it. I get it. I too am fed up with the fact that I sometimes have to overcompensate um, and have to try to validate my blackness. And again, my blackness is just my skin color, right? Um, I have to validate my blackness by going above and beyond to prove to someone that I'm not a threat. Um, that my first that my first impression of them has to be intentional and that I am not here to threaten you or to threaten your life, but that I'm here to have a civil conversation with you or to shop with you in a civil manner in a department store or in a boutique or in whatever. Um, so that can get tiring. And that's yeah. why we've seen on Facebook and, and all the other social media platforms, we've seen people say, I'm tired. This is what they mean when they say I'm tired. You know, I'm tired of having to go back and forth with the consistent trying to overcompensate for someone else or for your fears. I'm not responsible for your fears. Mm -hmm. I'm responsible for how I, how I come off, you know? Yeah. Um, so that, again, that's, that's what I see is kind of bubbling up and the way that people are expressing themselves are a lot different. Some people aren't talking. Some people aren't talking to their white friends. Some people are going, taking to the streets and protesting peacefully while wearing a mask. Some people are taking to the, to the, to the streets protesting, not wearing a mask. Some people are rioting and, and are breaking things. There's a whole slew of different ways that people are responding to the same issue, mm -hmm. but we can't, we can't marginalize them and generalize them that, oh, well, since they're doing this, they must not have had bad experiences either. You know, mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of that too. So what I'm saying is that there's a lot of problems on all sides of the pie, mm -hmm. but we have to realize the principle and not get, not get distracted away from the principle of what really it is. And, and that's the fact that, America isn't where, isn't where it needs to be mm -hmm. when it comes to um, liberty and justice for all. Mm -hmm. There are still, unfortunately, different justice systems for different types of people, and that's wrong. Um, but I think that's what should continue to spur us and encourage us to create that America um, mm -hmm. that, that is far better than, than, our, than our parents or grandparents could have ever imagined it to be. That's good. It reminds me of um, in the house of worship that I attend yesterday, um, uh, our pastor and one of our elders um, had a conversation. We did, they did more of a conversational sermon. And this particular elder is African-American, uh, military veteran, 23 years. And he said something that you just said. He said, I'm not allowed to have a bad day. Uh, if I have a bad day, then you know, I'm uppity, I'm belligerent, I'm this, I'm that, and that could put my life in jeopardy depending on, on who I am interacting yeah. with. So yeah, I think that's very sobering. And I also think that, that you have said it so simply that if we have listeners out there who have struggled with seeing the uh, disparities, inconsistencies uh, that exist in in our interactions, I hope that I hope that what you said is as simple as I believe it is that they can they can now see that there is a difference in how uh, African Americans are sometimes treated, uh, especially interacting with just you know from from the the crazy lady who's following you around in the in the department store to you know getting pulled over for speeding or something like that. Switching gears just a little bit. Pew Research, again, I love Pew Research. Pew, yeah. uh, Pew is a relig religiously based organization, but even atheists like Sam Harris will say Pew Research because it's a very <laughs> reputable, it's a very reputable yeah. data gathering organization. They did a survey three weeks ago uh, and discovered that five out of six protesters are actually uh, Caucasian not necessarily African-American, not necessarily Hispanic. I was having dinner with uh, friends who are, who are Hispanic and they were joking around about how you'll never see like a Brown Lives Matter movement because Mexican mothers will, will believe the police over their own children every time. <laughs> um, I've heard that, yeah. 
from your perspective, and, and we recognize that you're not speaking for everybody, you're, you're speaking for yourself and your own experience, but what, what are your perceptions of, of the protests and, and the state of those things? Yeah, so um, I was actually talking with, with a friend of mine who was one of my best friends. We've been friends for, oh, way too long. Um, and she's a she's a woman and and she's 20 she's my age 24 um she is at one point in time she and i were completely opposite on political mm -hmm. ideology mm -hmm. and um but still we we're the best of friends and now she has moved more towards the center which is nice i have moved toward more towards the center as well but she and i were talking about that fact that the majority of the protesters are are white she made a very interesting point to me she said I wonder if the, the white people that are marching and protesting, if they still feel a sense of fear whenever they walk past a group of black people in a grocery store. I wonder if they, if they intentionally don't try to date black people or that they swipe left when they're on a dating, a dating app or whatnot, um, when they see someone black without even looking at their profile. Like, I wonder if that's their first reaction. But I, and I wonder how many of them are there in the protests just to uh, um, be an opportunist on an aspect of social justice to make themselves feel better? That's a great question. Um, I know a lot of people that I've seen posting on Facebook and, and all these other platforms that have not been the most caring people to someone who had more melanin in, in, in their body than they did. Um, they have oftentimes shrugged them off because they are black or brown. So my concern or my hope is that they have changed. I can't say that, that I can't say that I can see fruit from them changing just because they share something on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Anyone can do that. Anyone can press a button. Um, but it's about your actions on a, on, a, on, a, on a daily basis. But as far as the protests, you know, I have, this is kind of my theory with any protest. Protests have to be matched with um, some sort of whether it's legislative action or lobbying action at the government level. Um, so if I'm going to have a protest, I want to make sure that I'm backing up that protest with meetings with my legislature, with my legislators um, to discuss the issues that are at hand. Because I can file a permit with the city and I can, I can have a protest and I can march along these blocks and I can pay for police detail to make sure that everyone stays safe. Um, but it can also end just right there. Because starting a movement is easy. Sustaining a movement and putting it into legislative change and putting it into change that, that impacts generations is harder. Um, you know, the, the saying goes in politics, I'm gonna relate back to this, anyone can win an election, but not everyone can govern. Um, I mean, we see that today in America, anyone can win an election, but not everyone can govern. Governing is hard. Um, so. I, I just question whether or not the, the policies that are being promoted by some who are protesting, which if they are protesting, that is 100% your right. I applaud you for protesting. Um, I protested myself in different, different areas, but I just, my question would be, is that I, I, I wonder if you are also backing that up with tangible, pragmatic change that you're seeking to deliver. And in addition to that, Change cannot happen overnight. Change will not happen overnight. And I don't, I don't think that change should happen overnight. Because if, if, it, if it takes you 24 hours to change something, then it can also take you 24 hours to change it back to the way that it was. You know, sustainable change is not just something that's done willy-nilly, you know, in the, in the back room and like suddenly, oh, we've cured police reform, like we fixed police reform. No, police reform can't be fixed at, at the congressional level. Police reform is fixed at the local level where we tie in local community leaders, faith leaders of that community, uh, the community members themselves with the police, with the governmental officials there. And we say, hey, this is how, this is, these are the things that we see as a need. How can we bridge the gap? What can we do better on both sides? So the protests are great. I love the aspect of a protest. I would like to urge a word of caution. We are still in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, but this is kind of two-sided, right? We're in the midst of a global pandemic at the moment. So if you are going to protest, please wear a mask. Um, Gen Z, please wear a mask. Just because you will not be probably negatively affected by the coronavirus doesn't mean that you won't see your parents or grandparents who might have a worse outcome. 
that's my shameless plug for public health. <clears throat> but in addition to that, you see people are willing to risk their lives and risk being infected with a disease for the sake of their life because they think that if they don't do this now, if they don't um, speak up now, they might not have a life to live in the future. You know, they're, they're fighting for more than just one cause. Um, so again, I think that as long as you are protesting with something else that backs that up, I think that's a good thing. I think it's how you bring about positive change to your cause and educating on why you're protesting um, is another thing. I know it's hard for, for us black people and brown people to explain why my life might matter at a baseline level. I know that's hard, I know it's tiring, but we still have to do it. And I think that's, what, that's where we have to pull on our strengths that's stronger than we think we are um, because we have to explain this to people. Because uh, yes, it sh absolutely should be the thing where, where we shouldn't have to explain why my life matters. I, I understand that. It should not be a thing. But the reality is, is that it is a thing and that we have to explain it. Um, so we have to sometimes explain, hey, this is why this is the way it is. Yes, they can go and learn themselves, but if someone reaches out to you and says, hey, I would like to learn. I think that it's incumbent upon us to help those who are reaching out to us that want to learn. So I know I kind of went on different tangents there, um, but all in all, protests, great, but even greater and more important whenever they are followed up with some sort of concrete, pragmatic, practical, tangible action. That's fantastic. And I think that's something that, again, using the word turmoil, um, I think an interesting observation is Sean King uh, tweeted several weeks ago about uh, many in the African-American community may be saying, vote, vote, vote. But I think correctly, he observed, we've been voting the way that we were told to vote uh, for the last you know, 20 years in Minneapolis. And Minneapolis is chock full and has been for at least 10 plus years of more of the progressive leaning political leaders. And still things like this have happened with George Floyd in Minneapolis. So I think we've come to a point where it's like, we have to be, like you said, much more targeted with, with how we're following up. It's not just enough to elect somebody with who you think has the right letter preceding their name, you know, right political party, but people who are actually intent on addressing the issues that, that we are concerned about. One thing that I would just add to that is, you know, there's a term, I guess, white allies. And I remember not too long ago, it was a few years ago, there was a shooting, I think some police officers, I think in this particular instance, I'm trying to remember, a couple of police officers were killed. It was in response to an African-American dying potentially under police brutality. Again, I'm using this language because I can't remember the exact details, but I remember I was watching the news with a friend and that friend said, I don't understand why they're saying black lives matter, all lives matter. And I said, well, you know, let me ask you a question. Um, if your child was autistic and you were raising funds or, or you know, some initiative to better the life of your autistic child and, somebody said, and you said, my autistic child's life matters and somebody said, well, Down syndrome, all, all children's lives matter. Like, it's not just autistic, all. And, and the great thing has been seeing a shift in those last few years of just having that yeah. very simple conversation. Now I've had other conversations that didn't shift a thing, <laughs> but <laughs> I, you know, I think for, for white folk Caucasians out there, a little bit of my Southern's coming out, but um, for white folk out there that, you know, it is important that you take the time to explain to family and friends that are also Caucasian white, um, why these things are important to, to black people that you love, brown people that you love. I think you made a, a very, very good point um, in the fact that, you know, white people can have sort of an inroad with other white people just because they look like each other, you know? Um, and I think too, like that goes back to one thing that I always point to, and that is relationship. Like, yes, more people are realizing that Black Lives Matter isn't just the organization that has political views, but that it's also a statement. 
and that in some ways that statement has been hijacked to promote another political cause, right? It's sure. an opportunist statement or an opportunist sure. um, yeah. thing for sure. But, but the statement that black life matters shouldn't be politicized um, because black life does matter and black life should matter in America yeah. and around the world. Um, but I think too that that happened, that change was slower than it sh should have been, but the change still happened. And how many times have we been wanting some sort of political reform or some sort of change here in America? And it's happened slower than we wanted it to happen, but it still happened and we're thankful for when it happened. I'm thankful for the fact that friends of mine who were very anti-Black Lives Matter completely two or three years ago are now saying, hey, Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I agree with the organization and, what, right. and the things that, that they stand for, but the principal statement of Black Lives Matter, like I like that, like that is mm -hmm. the truth. That is, that is 100% America, uh, mm -hmm. American. Um, so I think that's a, another good thing is that relationship really matters. Mm -hmm. um, and that relationship is how you're gonna have an inroad with people to have that conversation of, of hey, like, can I sit down and talk with you? Yeah. Um, like, you know, you trust me, you trust my opinions on things. Let me give you my opinion on this. And let me tell you why I think it's right. Uh, let me tell you why, uh, just like you said, well, what if your child was, your child was autistic and then the person with Down syndrome said, hey, well, all, all kids matter. You know, that, I think that's a great, great example. Um, so again, relationship is really, really important in this fight. And it's not going to be one in 2020. 2020 is a crazy year as it is. It's not going to be one in 2020 or 2021 or with the next election cycle. Um, it's not going to be one because we put one party in power over the other party. It's going to be one when we have relationships with people that translate into positive and effective change that transcend party identification and party line. One party does not have the answer, but neither party in this country, neither major political party in this country have the answer to this. Right. And um, I, they, they both have screwed it up. Both parties have screwed up big time, right? And who has been the, who has been the resulting, had the consequences of that? Black and brown people have had the consequences for their screw-ups but yet nevertheless we still persist and we still fight for our own life and we fight to to make our lives um make our lives matter um mm -hmm. i i tell this i like to tell a story again and i'm gonna pause after this but i tell a story all the time that you know my mentor um yours as well is a mm -hmm. hispanic man mm -hmm. and um i have heard things thrown out about hispanic people that were very less than savory and that mm -hmm. we're racist. Mm -hmm. And he's heard things thrown out about me as a black man. He's heard things thrown out about you as a white man. Mm -hmm. And yet, regardless of the of the of the issue, we all stand up for each other because we know each other and we have a relationship. But beyond that relationship, there's a basic level of human decency that we have, yeah. a basic level of respect that we have for our humanity, mm -hmm. not just us as 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 friends, mm -hmm. but for our humanity. And I think that that's something that we need to get back in touch with in America is like, where is our humanity? Where, mm -hmm. where are the things that we care most about um, in all things? So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to interject there. I just wanted to no, add No, I think it's great. Well, and, and at the end of the day, people, I think individuals who have such staunch attitudes about a race, um likely don't have personal and meaningful relationships with anybody um uh from that race and so until it becomes personal and humanized to you it's easier to see somebody as a number or a statistic or or something like that so two yeah. two other thoughts i want to chase um as we wrap up the last 15 minutes of this for myself in the institute our objective is not to become necessarily uh, experts in critical race theory uh or anything like that um, this podcast is about observations and uh gaining at least one person's perspective on on some of these issues. A few weeks ago, a petition went up to oust UCLA professor, University of California, Los Angeles. He is an accounting professor. This accounting professor, I believe is Caucasian. And, you know, a lot of students, you know, all students in the US had to go online with COVID-19. And yeah. so 
towards the end of the semester as, as protests were gaining traction in the wake of the realization that, in the wake that the realization that Ahmad Arbery had, had happened back in February and it got glossed over uh, seemingly by a corrupt district attorney uh, as well as COVID-19 just overshadowing it, the George Floyd death in Minneapolis. This UCLA professor received an email from a Caucasian student and the Caucasian student uh, basically said, you should give all the black people in this class A's because they're too emotionally distraught to be able, I guess, to competently finish their final exam. And so the professor emailed the student back and said, you know, I'm very sympathetic um, and I understand you know, where you're coming from, I am uh, bound by university policy on how grades and tests are administered, things like that. So this, this student's response was to label him a racist and to start a petition to get him fired. From where I'm sitting, it seemed almost racist on the part of the student to think that, that African-American students in the class are incapable of finishing their exams. And, you know, crises, turmoil affect all of us differently. But sometimes it seems like there is, there is another insidious type of racism where white allies overcompensate and take on these kind of white savior complexes and speak for African Americans. And just wanted to see if you had any thoughts on that very long tee up to the question. Yeah, no worries, no worries. Yeah, I do. Um, so that, like you just said at the end, like that to me is perfect example of, of this white savior complex. Um, and that, you know, I'm going to speak for you on your behalf without communicating with all of you because I know what's best for all of you. Yeah. That's a problem. You know, that is an issue. And that's kind of the issues that we're, we're standing up and fighting for today. Like, you can't make policies to benefit us and to protect us when you don't have us at the table to talk about it. Right. Um, you know, black people have been through a lot of things and a lot of bad things and have still managed to persist to be very successful people as a whole. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't agree with that principle that we should assume that black students are not capable of completing a class because of all the issues going on in the, in the country. Because if that's the case, black students should have, every black student should have a, a, a diploma um, and a PhD for the, for the past five or six years of issues that have been going on, right? Like black students should have gotten a, a, a high school diploma because that went to school when Barack Obama was president because there are so many microaggressions because there was a black president at the time. And that, you know, you were assumed to have supported him even though you were 16 years old and you literally couldn't vote. Um, so, you know, I don't like those types of things. Um, what I prefer, what I rather, is I rather us as black people say, you know what, we see these things going on, but we're gonna show them that we can also walk and chew gum at the same time. I can continue to get my education. I can continue to make a grade in school, in higher education while also fighting for justice and equality um, at the judicial level or at the, at the justice level. So I think that <laughs> that almost is, like I would be offended um, if someone told me that, you know, um, I should do that. Now, the professor I'm sure would have handled it on a case-by-case -case basis if the student would have reached out and said, hey, I'm having a hard time with this, like can I, I get an extension on this or whatnot? I am quite positive that any professor uh, would have would have gone through that right um i remember i was in school uh, i was in college and there was a time where um two of my cousins were murdered um at a an act of hate at one point in time i think i think you were i think you were there yeah i'm pretty sure you were, i remember telling you about this and i told my professor two of my professors at the time and they said take your time on the projects and assignments due i'm not giving you a due date for them to be done take your time to process them to heal and that was it. There was no explanation. There was no nothing. You know, there was no. Um, we'll bring well, me two funeral sure? programs. And, right. I, yeah. I want to see this. Like, I want to know. I, and I didn't wind up going to the funeral um, either because my mom was like, I don't trust it. I don't know what's going to happen. Like, there is a lot of police 
that are going to be there because it is a very uh, hot investigation. Yeah. Um, so I didn't wind up going and that did eat me alive on the inside. Mm. And uh, I remember that moment and I'm like, man, like I also, and my mom told me at the time, she said, but you know, grieve, but you have to actively grieve too. You mm-hmm. know, don't just, don't just sit there and not do anything for a month. You still, you're still in school. You still got work to do. And that the, the principle that I realized in that moment was that life goes on in the midst of injustice. Life goes on in the midst of, of persecution, in the midst of turmoil, which is the overarching theme of today. Um, and that life goes on even when people like us are being gunned down. Life goes on when we're being arrested and, and thrown in prison for 30 years when, for crimes that we didn't commit. Mm-hmm. Life goes on when, for, for others of us so that we can get those people out of jail that yeah. for, you know, that, for crimes that they didn't commit. So I don't want anything to be handed to us at any point in time for the sake of when we get to those positions of power and those tables of, of influence, they can't have the right to say, well, you were just handed that or you were just given this. So you don't have, you didn't work hard for this. So like, you don't have the right to say this or that or the other. Like, I don't want that. I want us to be better. I want us to be better than that, than that moment of, well, you should just give them all A's. Like, what does that, what does that teach us? And A, and I think that the overwhelming majority of, of African-American students would have rejected that notion as well. Um, I mean, sure, in the moment, it would have sounded great because, I mean, every college student is like, man, I wish I could, like, just not have to do this assignment or whatnot. Oh, especially in accounting. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I second guess whether or not I would have taken that option. But I, I, I'm, I'm only kidding. But, you know, I mean, like, we we go to college for something bigger than ourselves. The majority of, of African-American students go to college for a, a reason and an issue bigger than just us. We go because we're bearing the weight of of our family's expectations on us to do better and to make something great of our lives, um, as well as as well as the 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 entire nation, you know, that we're being looked on with a with a magnifying glass, and uh, we want to do everything that we can and to 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 be the best we can be. So I lied. Second to last question. So a few weeks ago, I saw a video, and it was where a group of protesters wanted to tear down a statue of Lincoln. Lincoln is standing. There is an emancipated person who has one shackle, I believe on the left hand, and that shackle is not fettered. The statue was completely paid for by emancipated persons after the Civil War. Frederick Douglass, perhaps, you know, the most prolific African-American thinker, rhetorician, you know, the whole nine yards, uh, next to Martin Luther King Jr., gave the uh, commemorative speech for this statue. There was a group of protesters that want to tear the statue down. And even when they were given the history of it, that it was paid for solely by emancipated persons, and uh, there was a elderly lady who, you know, was smiling and explaining the significance of, like, the emancipated person is not, his head is not down in subservience, but he is actually rising to stand with with Abraham Lincoln as an equal. These protesters rejected that and said, well, they just couldn't fully appreciate how this statue would look in the modern day. And I think there's many of us um, who would say Black Lives Matter. Uh, we need to address police brutality, other issues that but we're still completely flabbergasted by this position that a group of emancipated people could not appreciate what what the statue would look like 160 years later. And so I was just wondering if you had any any thoughts or insight into that. Yeah, so I have seen that statue in person um, in my times that I've gone to Washington, D.C., um, and to see it in person versus to hear about it is a whole different story. Mm-hmm. Um, I had heard about that statue from my grandfather, uh, who had never gone to Washington, D.C. Um, and he would always tell me that, you know, I really wish you could go there and, and take a picture of that mm-hmm. statue. Um, and so I have a picture with that statue, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact. And I just remember um, just the joy that it brought to his eyes, knowing that, like, hey, like, this is, this is the real mm-hmm. deal kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the main things with, with the issue of statues, and, and this is coming from someone who grew up in the deep South, yeah. uh, his entire life. Um, I, for those of you who don't know, I live right outside of New Orleans. Um, 
and New Orleans and Louisiana as a whole is a very, very uh, uh, entrenched Confederate history. Um, one of the, some of the main thoroughfare street names of our, or streets of our city are, are named after Confederate generals. Um, the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, was or is, is a main thoroughfare or main, main street throughout our, our city. Um, we have this thing called Lee Circle, uh, where Robert, there's a large pedestal with a statue of Robert E. Lee atop of it. Uh, we have different Confederate generals around the city and around the state, um, as well as different uh, slave owners and slave traders who um, things were named after. Um, my thought on, on monuments, and I'm going to say this and then I'm going to get back to the original question. Um, my thought on monuments is that, for one, from an American history standpoint, they shouldn't have gone up in the first place um, because I don't, I can't think of any nation in the world, which I'm open to being corrected, but I can't really think of any nation in the world that waited, um, I don't know, let's say 70 to 80 years after the Civil War, after their Civil War. It was about 30 years after the Civil War when the first one. Well, yeah. for a lot, and for a lot of them, for a lot of those, um, yeah, for a lot of the, the, the Confederate monuments, some yes. of those didn't go up until the 30s, 40s, 50s, mm -hmm. or 40s, 50s, 60s. Sure. Um, particularly in, in Louisiana. Um, and uh, I, don't, I can't think of any country that after the Civil War was fought, almost a century after, we would put up monuments to honor those people. Right. Um, unless there was for some, some sort of insurrection-type cause. Um, I just can't think of anything that would do that, right? Because when you, when you have a war and you lose the war, the victor takes over things and resets the narrative of, of things that happen. Um, I just, that was kind of an issue to me. Like, I don't think this should have gone up in the first place, but I don't think, I also am not of the, fan, of, of, of the opinion that tearing them down um, by breaking the law, because technically it is breaking the law because it is public property. Um, I don't think that tearing them down by breaking the law or break whatever um, is, is the right message either. I say, why don't we go about this in a peaceful way? And, and they say, well, we've been peaceful for too long. They don't listen to peace. Fair, very fair. But have we even tried? Have we even tried is what I, what I question. Um, why don't we go about taking these things down in a peaceful way uh, in order to, you know, we go through our, our city council, our parish council, our state legislature to go and say, hey, like this is what the majority of people want. Can you please take this down? And you can replace it with something else. You can rename this with something else. But as far as the Abraham Lincoln statue goes, I don't agree with the notion of wanting to take it down. We can easily say that, you know, the, the David statue in, in Italy should be taken down because it's naked. I mean, I'm sure people have thought that before, but like it's still a work of art. And um, I'm not a fan of this, of the aspect of people trying to change the opinions of people who lived 150 years ago just to make ourselves feel better about it. I think that those monuments like that, specifically the Abraham Lincoln one with the slave or the freed slave, I think monuments like that should serve as a testament at the fact that we were once in a place in America where a president could stand next to a person in shackles um, as, as, as a person who was once owned by someone else. Um, I think that that is a better method of, of appreciating that rather than trying to take it down. Um, I think the lack of, of knowledge, the lack of education is so, is so deep and so entrenched in a lot of the things that, that we protest for. And I don't think that that's right either, because what's the point in protesting for something that we don't know why we're protesting for? What's the point in taking down a statue that we don't know why we're taking it down? Like why was the Frederick Douglass statue um, beheaded in, in, in one place and then it was thrown down in another place. I mean, really, like Frederick Douglass was literally an abolitionist who was willing to give his life to free people. He was a free slave. Like, I yeah. understand these, these things, you know? Yeah. Um, so those are the issues that I have a problem with. If we wanted to remove the Abraham Lincoln statue, by all means, go about it in the, in the proper way since it is on public property. File a petition um, with, your, with, your, with the Washington DC council. But people don't wanna do that because people are so impatient. And especially Gen Z, my generation, are so impatient, we want change right away. Mm -hmm. Well, change doesn't happen right away. It doesn't. We have to sometimes deal with things that we don't like. 
for a long period of time. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. I hate that sometimes, but also I appreciate it sometimes because it also means that we're not going to have this constant ebb and flow of, of changes in government all the time and of changes in policy every single day. That is not sustainable. That's not, that is not a representative of a stable uh, republic that we have. So I, I also am of, the, of, am of the opinion that we just can't go out there breaking the law. We have to obey the law. And they say, well, well our grandparents didn't obey the law. They boycotted things and they, they had sit-ins. Those are, is, those are different issues when they come because they weren't vandalizing something to, to progress their cause. They were sitting there and they were saying, I am a paying patron and I have a right to be here but you don't want me here. Like you literally let me come in, but you don't want me here anymore. Even though you literally said that I can come in. So um, those are just two different, two different issues as well. I don't think that we can compare the two. And the other thing, last thing I promise. The other thing that I think we as Gen Zers need to do um, or that we should do, I don't like telling people what they need to do, what we should consider doing is to listen and learn from people who have gone before us. Sit down and talk with, with someone who's over the age of 50. Uh, my mom is 53 years old. <clears throat> and uh, she was the first group, well, part of the first busload of black students to integrate her high school, her elementary school mm, in wow. 1971. Like, I mean, my mom is, is, is as generically American as anyone else. I would have never imagined, like if you meet her, you never imagined that she was a part of that, that civil rights movement mm -hmm. in her own way. Mm -hmm. But like sit down and talk to someone who's older than you, who's gone through certain things. Um, sit down and learn from them about the principles that they've gone on, that they've went through. Because what we're seeing today isn't anything new. There's mm -hmm. nothing new under the sun. Right. Um, it's just a cycle, right? So someone has been through this at some point in their life, we should learn from them and not make their same mistakes. Oh, that's great, that's great. Well, you actually answered my last question. I was going to say, Sean, just so I can ask it. So I'm going to say, Sean, you know, <laughs> give us give us some insight into uh, into what you're seeing with your millennial and Gen Z friends on on the issues of race. Do you think that millennials and Gen Z are more racist, just as racist, maybe less racist today? Um, what do you think are the glimmers of hope, and what do you think are are the areas that still still need help? Uh, that's a that's a good question. Um, that's why I asked. It. I think <laughs> I think that Gen Zers are not nearly as um, overt with with their uh, prejudices. I guess I think that's the grammatically correct way to, to word that. There there are things that Gen Zers can do differently that I think we should consider doing differently. Um, I was on TikTok, right? That's the, the Gen Z thing to do nowadays. Um, I, it is a Chinese scam, yes, I know, but um, it is very addictive. And I was on TikTok several weeks ago um, when the unrest really was having its peak. And um, I saw so many TikToks where they were saying, I'm only going to date black men and women. Like people would say that and I'm like, that's not the answer to this. That no, that's no, no, no. Dude, that's not that's not what we want. We, that's not what we want. Or, um, you know, black people are better than everyone else. And I'm like, no, that's not. And these are all white people that were saying these things. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's that's not that's not what we want. Don't don't do that. Don't hijack this moment for your own personal clout moment. Like, stop seeking clout and do what's right. So yes, I do think that Gen Z has some, some racist undertones in, in their, way, their way of thinking, but they're so entrenched in their, their personal ideology that they don't realize that it's prejudice because they do so many other things that are not racist. And they have so many black friends and they have so many uh, Hispanic friends and so many Asian friends, right? And um, so it's like, well, there's no way that I can be that because I love culture. Well, you might love culture, but you can also love it by not appropriating it either. You know, um, when you have your Thanksgiving, your Thanksgiving meals, don't sit there and, and dress up like Pocahontas. I mean, like, don't do that. You know, like it's things like that, that they think are still okay. Or well, only it's for Halloween. So I can do that. No, like those are the simple undertones that we don't realize that, that we have. So I do think that Gen Z is still has some racial insensitivities to get over. 
but I really do believe that Gen Z is definitely the generation to make sure that that is trashed over or that is that is shoved over to the ash heap of history as well, because they might realize that that's within them and they are quick to get rid of it because they do not want to be canceled for fear of being canceled, um, for fear of being ostracized from their friends, for fear of of, of having any or being uh, canceled on Twitter or something, you know, but that's a that's another issue too. Like we, we also have to realize that people can make mistakes. We can recover from those mistakes as well. Um, and not be so quick to cancel them. But we have to work on reconciling issues and having conversations about it. So yeah, Gen Z does have some issues to deal with, but they're not nearly as many as I would say um, millennials, definitely not baby boomers or Gen Xers came before baby boomers, but definitely not as many as Gen Xers. Um, but I also think that Gen Zers need to listen more and learn from um, our millennial and Gen X parents of, hey, why do you have these thoughts? Like, why do you feel this way about a certain type of people? Learn from them, realize that they might have a reason behind it because they may have had a bad experience. And then we can go back at them with more education and what we and what our educational thoughts are. So we've got to be open to dialogue for sure. And I think, we, I think Gen Z is going to be the generation to change the world. Sorry, millennials, but uh, I think we're going to change the world. And again, I'm a cusper, so I kind of... That'll offend you, but I think I think we're gonna change the world.